Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. We want to welcome you back to the new season of Club Book. We will be hosting nine amazing events from February to April 2016 all around the Twin Cities Metro, and we look forward to having you join us. Our first podcast of the spring 2016 season features Lori Sturdivant at Anoka County's Rum River Library. Lori Sturdivant is a veteran editorial writer and columnist for the Star Tribune and one of the most recognizable bylines in Twin Cities print journalism. Her forte is state government and politics, a beat she has covered for more than 35 years. Sturdivant has also penned, co-written, or edited nine books on important Minnesota topics. These include A Man's Reach, the autobiography of Elmer L. Anderson, The Pillsburys of Minnesota, and Citizen Swain, Tales of a Minnesota Life. Sturdivant is a three-time Minnesota Book Award winner, most recently in 2015 for Her Honor, Rosalie Wall in the Minnesota Women's Movement, which tells the remarkable story of the first woman to be named to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Sturdivant makes use of slides in this discussion. If you're interested, you can find these online at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, Lori Sturdivant. Thank you, Jim. <clears throat> well, what a treat it is to be in Anoka tonight and to kick off this series, Club Book. It's an admirable thing how often Minnesotans gather together in libraries and living rooms and churches and other settings to talk about books. This is a, a, a big part of our civic infrastructure, our, our connective tissue as a community. And it's been fun for me as a, as a dabbler in Minnesota history and an author to get to know so many folks through this kind of venue. So tonight I hope we can have a conversation. I'll share a little bit about one of the books that Jen mentioned. The, the book I'll talk about is Her, is, uh, Her Honor, Rosalie Wall and the Minnesota Women's Movement. But then I'll leave, I hope, plenty of time for us to have a more general conversation if you'd like talk about other books I've written or other books maybe you think I should write and we can also talk a little Minnesota politics if you wanted to do that too. <laughs> the reason I want to talk tonight about her, the book Her Honor, Rosalie Wall and the Minnesota Women's Movement is it's the Minnesota version of what's now called by historians the second wave of the, of the feminist movement in this country. The first wave was suffrage that would have been Seneca Falls, 1848 through 1920, when the 19th Amendment is added to the Constitution and women win the right to vote. That movement was all about 
admitting women into full citizenship in this country. The second wave is what we'll be focusing on tonight in, in, as we talk about Rosalie Wall and what happened in Minnesota during that period. The, the second wave was all about opening occupational doors that had been closed to women. It was about women's roles in society, making uh, that uh, opportunity for them to pursue careers other than being a teacher or a secretary or a nurse, which was about all my mother's generation, Rosalie's generation, thought they could do until things changed. Beginning in about 1965, and I would say in Minnesota it ends when Rosalie leaves the Minnesota Supreme Court in 1994. There's talk of a third wave. Some folks, I've been challenged in some of these settings I've had recently, folks say, oh, we're already there. We're already in a third wave movement. Well, I think that will be true. Historians may look back and say we are already there if we take up the next thing. We see those, those occupational doors opened, but the next move, part of the movement, I think, is changing what happens inside those doors now that women and men are there together, sharing the roles of adulthood together across gender lines. Well, I've been pleased with how well received the Rosalie Ball book was, and Jen mentioned it did win a Minnesota Book Award. I think that's partly because of the compelling life story of Rosalie Wall, and I have a few slides to show you about that. I also think it's because people are interested in whether or not there's a third wave that's upon us now. So, oh, I'll just mention this photo before I click through it here. This is a, a photo taken right outside my church, which is Hennepin Avenue United Methodist Church in Minneapolis. After a, a meeting in about 1972, I think it was a, a planning meeting for that next legislative session in 1973 when the Minnesota legislature ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. You see Gloria Steinem there. Uh, you see over Gloria's uh, shoulder, it, it, looking kind of a, toward the left, a woman with long red hair. That's Marlene Johnson, Minnesota's future oh. lieutenant governor. You see um, uh, kind of uh, right behind Gloria in the, with the blue, that's Corinne Horball, a name that you may, those of you who remember NOCA politics, DFL politics, was a real force it, within the DFL party and opening up the roles for women. And then right behind Corinne, way in the back, rather young looking woman with her hair pulled back in a ponytail, that's State Senator Linda Berglund, way before she was a state senator, but was already as a young girl active in Minnesota politics. I could name a few others. Uh, the, uh, the woman holding the child in the front is Mary Paddock. She's now heavily involved in her retirement years in trying to reroute Southwest Light Rail away from Cedar Lake in Minneapolis. Still, still an active citizen. You see how those folks have contributed to Minnesota during the years since that photo was taken. Now, Rosalie Wall was indeed a Minnesota pioneer in that she was the first woman on the state Supreme Court, appointed by Rudy Perpich in 1977. But she was by no means alone. I like to say that, that she rode the wave of that second wave of the Minnesota women's movement. And then when she got to the court, she had uh, the opportunity to accelerate the wave by pulling other women along behind her. And that's what made her distinctive. For, to do this book, I had a chance to interview her in 2009. I was invited to do the book by some funders who uh, well, frankly hired me to do this. I was eager for the assignment. And then said, if you want to uh, interview Rosalie for this book, go do it right now. Drop whatever else you're doing. Her health is not good. So I took that advice to heart and, and got permission from the uh, fellow whose book I was working on then. It was George Pillsbury. He was glad, a good feminist and glad to let me go, and off I went to interview Rosalie, who said over and over again, I owe it all to the women, meaning the Minnesota women's movement. 
She felt that her career was made possible by the movement that was, it was flourishing in the 1970s. I, I think there's a more to it. I think her own story is pretty compelling, but uh, she was, it, it, by her own admission, part of, of a wave. Here's some interesting, here's some information about Rosalie Wall. She was born in Kansas. Her, her dad was an oil jobber, which meant the family moved a great deal, and she was the third child in a family of four. And when she was almost four years old, her mother died of pneumonia, leaving uh, uh, the family in, in, a, in a bad way. Uh, the, the family broke up. The older two daughters stayed with dad and continued to move around as he, his work took him from place to place. The younger two children went to live with grandpa and grandma on the farm. This was her, her maternal grandparents, Harry and Effie Patterson. And then when, when she was eight years old, almost eight years old, uh, in a terrible accident with a train right before her eyes, the train smacked into a wagon that was carrying her baby brother and her grandfather and killed them both. Uh, just a horrible thing that she was, she was witness to. There was no recompense for that family. There was no uh, willingness on the part of the local prosecutors to press charges against a train that was speeding and had not sounded its whistle as it was directed to by law that was uh, uh, coming around a blind curve and, and did not in any way signal. And there was uh, no capacity in 1932 in the depths of the Depression for a farm family with no money to press for forward with a civil lawsuit. They went to see an attorney in Caney, Kansas, and he said, oh, I'll take the suit if, if you give me $100 up front. Well, this widow didn't have $100, and nothing was ever done by way of justice there except for years. Rosalie grew up hearing the, the relatives complain about the lack of justice for the loss of two lives. Rosalie was a very bright student. She went to a country school very close to her own, to the, the, the little house where she and her grandmother uh, spent the rest of, their, of, their, of her childhood days. Uh, and then she came of age in 1942 and enrolled in the University of Kansas. And what a time to come of age in the United States, one year after the, the start of the, uh, of the Second World War. She had a sweetheart at that point, a fellow she had met at Methodist Youth Fellowship named Eldon Peck. And Eldon Peck and, she, and Rosalie decided that they would be married. And so after just one year at the University of Kansas, she was studying journalism at the time, she decided to uh, uh, take a, a, sh a short-term teaching course in order to be certified by the state of Kansas to be a country school teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. My mother did about the same thing about the same time in South Dakota. That's, it was, you could teach in a country schoolhouse, teach all the grades, usually from grades uh, one uh, K through, what well, didn't have kindergarten then, one through six or one through eight. You could uh, be certified to teach by after a five-week training program in the summertime <laughs> at a teacher's college. That's what she did, and she was uh, uh, playing that role when she got word in November of 1943 that her fiancé had been badly injured in a, in a training accident. She quickly got on a train and went as fast as she could, and she said that she had the sense as the train got close to her destination. Uh, at one point, she stepped off the train, and she said, I felt a, a terrible chill, and she learned later that it was at that moment that he died. She returns, she goes home, and, and she, her comment to me was, if the, if the Methodist Church had had a convent, she would have joined it at that point. She was, <laughs> it, it was, it was uh, a, of course, a time when many young women were experiencing the loss of, of soldier boyfriends and soldier fiancés and husbands. And so the, the grief that she knew was not, uh, she was not alone in experiencing that grief. It, grief and she was teaching school back uh, very close to her home and living again with grandma, and so she had uh, the support of, of her extended family and of her grandmother as she grieved that loss. 
and decided at, that at the beginning of the next semester she would go back to the University of Kansas, uh, accelerate her program, uh, and aim to graduate in 1946. So she was actually on campus for only three years. But what a time that was after she came back to school beginning in the fall of uh, 1944 a time for women to experience on campus the kinds of leadership roles that they never would have experienced had the men not all been off at war. Uh, she was able to be the uh, uh, head of the yearbook. She was the president of the YWCA and involved in, in an integra integrated housing project through the YWCA, the first of its kind at the University of Kansas. Then in the fall of 1945, the boys started to come home from the war. She met Ross Wall, who was the son of the dean of the medical school at the University of Kansas. He was someone who had been through the Battle of the Bulge and had seen terrible fighting and experienced terrible losses and came back with what today we would call post-traumatic stress disorder. There was no such name then at the time, but what uh, Ross Wall knew is he wanted no more part of war. He was a pacifist. He got involved with the Quaker faith and so did Rosalie, independent of Ross. That was through their Quaker connections that they met. And then they were married in 1946, and uh, they were caught up in some utopian ideas about creating communal villages, intentional communities, they called them. And Circle Pines, Minnesota, a place not too far from where we are tonight, has that history. It was founded in, in large part by, the, uh, by a Quaker movement after World War II to create uh, a shared communal style uh, of living. Uh, Grossly called that period yeasty days. It, uh, it, it didn't last. These communal experiments seldom did. Uh, by the 19, late 1950s, she was living with others uh, who had started this experiment in Lionel Lakes, but their attempt to make a living together was sort of crumbling apart. Uh, but for the women who were involved in this experiment, there was support in child rearing and some of those uh, activities around the community that the men did not experience in common. Rosalie found that uh, experience of, of communal living supportive in an important way. She became aware, though, that the, her marriage was not in great shape. Her husband had a variety of issues, mental illness and alcoholism among them. And she became aware that it was likely she was going to have to help support that family, by then four children, uh, going to be uh, going to college before too long, and decided that she was going to pick up her education again. Always a great student, always interested in justice issues. She chose to go back to, to go to law school at William Mitchell College of Law, which then was exclusively a night school offering part-time studies for adults who were already engaged in other work. She was one of only two women in her law school entering class in 1962. While she was there, she had her fifth child, Jenny. And you see little Jenny here with the pigtails in the front of this picture. Can you imagine this? In the fall of 1963, she has already enrolled for what would have been a, a, a full load of classes for the following spring. And she uh, uh, realizes that she's expecting so she goes to the young dean, young male dean of the law school, to say, I'm, I'm needing to alter my course schedule for the next semester. Well, why would you do that? That will just slow you down. You won't be able to graduate on time. Well, I'm pregnant. And it, I, he, he told me he thinks he may have said congratulations. She thinks he may have said congratulations. But his, the next thing out of his mouth was, how dare you? You shouldn't be doing this. You're going to screw up your career. You won't be able to get the classes you need. I strongly advise against you slowing down your class schedule for next semester. She was 39 years old and expecting her fifth child. She knew what she was talking about when she said she needed to slow down a bit. And she somehow stood her ground and didn't lose her temper with this young man. It was, I think, a remarkable thing. 
She wound up only taking one week off of classes that next semester. And the class that she missed, Doug Heidenreich, that dean, wound up offering to her as an independent study in his office over tea at 5 o'clock in the afternoon so that she could, could take the, law, the bar exam on time. He winds up hiring her to come back to William Mitchell five years after she graduated to be a founder of that school's first clinical program in the criminal law. Uh, the notion of, of uh, sort of practice lawyering, clinical, uh, uh, the clinical approach to legal education was a brand new thing then, and Rosalie was a real pioneer in that movement and became a, an important national figure in the addition of, of a practical element to law schools. She wound up being a, a head of the ABA's accreditation committee, and she wound up heading several commissions working on reforming law school and legal education to make it a, a more practical and relevant thing. That was a, a big contribution that she made to the legal profession way outside the borders of Minnesota for a, in a national kind of way. So uh, as she was establishing this program in William Mitchell, the women's movement really begins to accelerate in Minnesota. And I have here some of uh, sort of a, a yearbook style uh, gallery of photos of some of the women that I covered when I was a new kid reporter in the 1970s who were already involved in the Minnesota women's movement. And I'll give you just a quick rundown of who they are starting here in the upper left-hand corner. That's State Senator Nancy Bradis of Rochester. She was the first woman elected in her own right, we used to say. That meant she, her husband was not a a, a state senator or a, a person in office who had been in that post and then had died. She was not a widow succeeding to her husband's seat. Rather, she was elected in her own right Republican in 1975, pro-choice Republican. Next came, uh, comes uh, state, uh, Joan Grow, who was one term in the Minnesota House and then became Minnesota's Secretary of State, first woman elected to statewide office in her own right again, and uh, served for, in that post for 24 years. Next is my friend Arvon Fraser, with whom I wrote one of those books we talked about earlier, her, the book She's No Lady. Arvon Fraser was Minnesota's per human link between the national women's movement and the Minnesota one. She was uh, then Congressman Don Fraser's wife, but oh, she was so much more. Head of the National Women's Equ uh, Equity Action League, which was a legal arm working to change the laws in, in this country to uh, uh, make it uh, uh, fairer for women to operate in the economic sense and in a, in a legal sense. Uh, next comes Emily Ann Staples. She had been a Republican and was uh, out in the uh, western suburbs, an active Republican, and was very annoyed when in, I think, the 1972 State Republican Convention, there had been previously a, a, plat, plat, a state platform plank endorsing the Equal Rights Amendment. They began to get cold feet about that and dropped it. And oh, she was so mad she switched parties and was elected as a DFL state senator in 1976. Below Emily Ann is Marlene Johnson. You saw her in long red hair in the first picture. Here she is as she looked when she was lieutenant governor of Minnesota, our first female lieutenant governor elected in 1982 with Rudy Purpich. Below Arvanis Khan, still in the legislature today, longest serving legislator along with Lyndon Carlson in, Minnesota, in the uh, history of the Minnesota House. Uh, uh, next to Phyllis is uh, Linda Berglund. You saw her in the earlier slide as well. Linda now works for Hennepin County. She was 38 years in the legislature and was a national leader in state health care policy. And next to Linda is Mary Forsyth, who was a national leader in mental health policy while she was in the legislature, a Republican from Edina. And uh, was, uh, 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 when she was first on the ballot, they wanted to list her as Mrs. Robert Forsyth because her husband was prominent in Republican politics and had been 
on the ballot uh, unsuccessfully against Jean McCarthy running for the U.S. Senate at one point. No, she insisted she was going to be Mary Forsyth on that ballot in 1972 and was uh, 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 serving, I think, about 22 years in the legislature. Those were some of the folks, that, along with these people here too, who were uh, beginning to say, why can't we have women as, as in all kinds of roles in government, in business, in, in uh, legal circles? Rosalie Wall is the, f the person here on the far left. This is the meeting of the Minnesota Women Lawyers, a meeting in Duluth, where they are, the discussion topic over breakfast that morning is how do we crack this glass ceiling when it comes to judges in Minnesota? At that point, in the middle 1970s, there had been never a governor, and no governor had ever appointed a woman to the district court bench. There had been some governors who had appointed uh, municipal judges. We used to have such a thing, a lower level judgeship level called the municipal judge level that doesn't exist anymore. No, no woman had served as a district court judge by gubernatorial appointment. There was one in Hennepin County, Suzanne Sedgwick, who had gotten to who had achieved that uh, that district court judgeship through election that was beginning in 1970. She was, a, I think I mentioned, a Republican from Edina. These women are trying to figure out how do we get some governor, then it would have been Wendell Anderson, to appoint a woman to the bench. Well, they begin uh, to uh, uh, plot a strategy, and Wendell Anderson winds up not being the governor they dealt with. You know, if those of you who lived in Minnesota in those years remember that Wendell Anderson had uh, some other ambitions and wound up appointing himself to the U.S. Senate through a kind of mechanism that didn't serve him well politically. He, um, he succeeded by Rudy Perpich. And Rudy Perpich was our first governor from the Iron Range, our first Roman Catholic governor, and someone th that the new women's movement viewed with a lot of suspicion. And they were wrong. Rudy wound up being a real champion for opening professional doors for women. He told the DFL Feminist Caucus within a few weeks of becoming governor that he intended to appoint a woman to, to appoint women to appoint more women judges, and they didn't believe him. So much so that Corinne Horval and her friend Cynthia Kitlitsky camped out more or less at the governor's residence the night before the appointment to the Supreme Court vacancy that he filled with Rosalie in June. They were convinced that the last people to talk to him would probably be the persuasive ones and they wanted to be sure they were the ones. He finally threw them out. He was supposed to drive to Hibbing the next morning and speak at his son's high school graduation that night. His son was the valedictorian and he couldn't, he could, couldn't avoid being there. So he arranged for the announcement of his appointment to be made by Joan Grow at the Minnesota Women's Meeting in St. Cloud, a huge gathering, unprecedented before or since, I guess, in, in Minnesota history. And of course, the announcement was that Rosalie Wall would have that appointment, Rosalie the, the professor from William Mitchell College of Law. Well, I was in that room that night as a kid reporter, that big arena, steamy arena at uh, St. Cloud State University. And I, I, the, the room just erupted with this news that a woman had been appointed to the Supreme Court and when the name Rosalie Wall was spoken, people cheered as if she was their favorite person ever. And I felt, ooh, I don't even know who this is. What's wrong with me? Well, it turned out that most of the people who were cheering didn't know who Rosalie Wall was either. She was not a, a, by any means a household name. But the idea that not only were, were, was a governor appointing a woman as a judge, but to the highest court in the state, well, that was a, a, a breathtaking thing and something that was a, a long-sought goal for the Minnesota women's movement. Rosalie wowed people with her exceptional speech. She was a poet and uh, an excellent speak, public speaker. Uh, her speeches were, were so good that they were often reprinted in the Star Tribune and in the, in the uh, other newspapers around the state. This, this quote at the bottom here is, is one of the things that were, she said that is memorable from her acceptance address. 
She had to stand for election right away in 1978. And people sometimes think we don't have mean judicial elections in Minnesota. Well, we did that year. The, the, the fellows who thought that it was unfair that a professor, a female professor from Billy Mitchell had climbed past them and into the Supreme Court, they were offended and they ran against her. There were three men, two district judges and one former attorney general who ran against her in the primary. The campaign was nasty. If, if it had been uh, uh, just a, a, a three-way race, I think Rosalie might have lost it. But with a, a four-way race, she was able to be one of the two finalists. The other finalist was uh, a f the former DFL Attorney General Robert Matson Sr. Those of you who know Minnesota political history know that the name Matson is associated with uh, uh, a bit of color and controversy within the DFL. He really overreached in the campaign against Rosalie in 1978, so much so that the legal establishment did then finally rally to Rosalie's side, as did the women's movement, who were, were, were who, who, folks who had been in her corner right along. She surprised a lot of people by winning that final general election with 57% of the vote, and she never had a serious challenge again. Rosalie wound up serving 17 years on the court, and she wrote 529 opinions, which means that there's a lot of, of material to, to research. Important uh, voice for women, especially women who had uh, been uh, uh, displaced as homemakers through divorce through family law. A lot of important voices uh, with regarding the, the rights of, uh, of people who had been both abused by crime and people who had been uh, accused of and, and convicted of crime. She liked to say that, that she liked to look at justice from the bottom up. But her real big contribution on the court was the 1989 Gender Fairness Task Force. Uh, this was a, a, a long study involving about 60 hearings around the state, and she attended them all. Uh, gathering information about how women had been treated in the Minnesota court system. Women from defendants all the way to those few women who were judges. And it was a, a, a pretty stunning record. The, the record of the, the, the publication of the uh, transcripts of those hearings uh, were, was uh, such eye-popping stuff. We had some national journalists come in and, and write stories that weren't very flattering about Minnesota based on, on the uh, uh, information that came out of those hearings. The Gender Fairness Task Force comes up with about 100 recommendations. I think all of them were eventually adopted either by the courts themselves or by the legislature. Really groundbreaking stuff. <laughs> Rosalie kept telling judges, that the male judges who were nervous about what she was doing, that how great it was that the judicial system cared enough about justice that they were willing to look at themselves and clean up their own act and show other institutions around the state how that was done. She would sort of sweet talk them into thinking this was all a good idea. <laughs> <coughs> That, that it was such a well-received thing that, that she was immediately asked to, to lead a racial bias task force within the judicial system, even though she knew that was going to be a, a harder nut to crack. Uh, partly because the, uh, uh, the, the information, the, the data that was available about women, outcome for women in the courts was simply not available outside of Hennepin County on, on the, 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 in the case of racial bias. Uh, there, uh, a, a good report was produced, uh, a lot of work was left to be done, and uh, that work was handed when she retired, handed to the new fellow on the court, Alan Page, who uh, just retired last year, and when I interviewed Alan Page about this work, he said there's still so much to be done with regard to racial bias. I like to think that when Rosalie left the court in 1994, the second wave of the women's movement in Minnesota crested. When she left, Minnesota had a female majority state Supreme Court. No other state in the union had it, has had it at that point. 
I think one or two states have had female majorities since then. But it was a very rare thing to have women accelerated that quickly into prominence in the law. That acceleration largely the credit of Governor Rudy Perpich. By the 1990s, one-third of the members of the Minnesota legislature are female. That's about what it is today. Uh, we had uh, a smattering of women who were CEOs in, in corporations. That's still true today. The Star Tribune lists every year the, 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 by the salaries in order of uh, 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 top business leaders in the state. Uh, number 25 in a list of 100 is, is the first time you see a woman's name. That's this year. Uh, more than half of the students at Minnesota law schools and medical schools were women by the, by the mid-1990s, and that is still true. And by the 1990s, Minnesota was boasting the highest share of women in the workforce in the nation, and that's, where I think, number three or four this, at, at this stage. We've always been ranked very highly in that regard. And yet, and yet, <laughs> not much has changed for an awful lot of women in the workforce. A majority of low-income workers are female, and you know the national statistics show that uh, women are paid, on average, about 80 cents for every dollar that men are paid. A majority of workers without paid sick leave are female. Without a majority of workers, male and female, ha don't, uh, don't a minority have paid parenting leave. In fact, I was told last week that only 14 nationally, only 14 percent of employees in the private sector have any kind of paid parenting leave, which I think is appalling, because I had that from the Star Tribune back in the 1970s and 80s. And, and caregiving, the caregiving of other family members, especially of elders, turns out to be a, a risky move for one's career. And when the, uh, at the, in the legislature in uh, 2014, the Minnesota Women's Economic Security Act was passed, it was supposed to include a provision of uh, uh, protection against discrimination for those employees who are engaged in the caregiving, especially of elder, elder, elderly relatives. Not special privileges, not you can go home early, just protection against discrimination in wages and in, in promotions, hiring and firing questions, if you happen to be a caregiver. The business community fought that so hard. That was, I think, the, the least popular provision with the business community in that bill, and it was excluded. It was omitted from the bill that finally passed. But that bill, passed in 2014, was, I was told afterwards by some national folks, was the best piece of, uh, of women's rights, women's economic rights legislation passed in the country in many a year. My sense is that in the first wave, Minnesota was not a leading state. In fact, it was kind of a laggard. In the second wave, we maybe kept pace with what was going on nationally because of co national connections with people like Arvon Fraser. But we were we, no, not, not particularly in the vanguard. But the, the thought that I was left with after 2014 is that Minnesota has a chance to be a real national leader as we think about a third wave. Just recently, Governor Dayton proposed a, uh, a paid parenting leave opportunity, only six weeks, sad to say, but a paid parenting leave opportunity for state employees. That would make us one of the few states in the country that offer this, and there's talk in the legislature of creating a system of social insurance that employers and employees can pay into with a small share of wages to create more paid parenting leave opportunities for uh, pe people who are employed in the private sector as well, that would be groundbreaking stuff. And with, if Minnesota can do those sorts of things, I think we have a chance to be real national leaders. This tells a little bit about what the, the Women's Economic Security Act did in, in, 19, in uh, 2014. And that leaves us to today. Rosalie left us in, in, uh, in July of 2013. She's not here to coach us, but I, as I think back on her life, 
these are some of the thoughts I have about what that second wave was about and what today's women who are pursuing, uh, it, men and women who are pursuing uh, the, the changes that a third wave might entail, what, what they might learn. One of the things that, that was clear from that period is it's that sisterhood came fairly easily to those who, women who met each other and, and discovered that they had a desire to work on, on opening some doors of opportunity. There was an easy sisterhood. Someone before the meeting began asked me for my business card and it reminded me of how Rosalie, when she was campaigning in 1978, would ask other women in the audiences that she spoke to, could, to, could they please provide her with their business cards? And she would provide hers in exchange. And she would say, you never know when we might need each other. And that just touches me so. It, it's a, such an easy acknowledgement that, that we are allies together in some kind of a, of a quest and, and we can rely on each other as need be to, uh, to make a difference. Rosalie was an optimistic person. She went through so many setbacks and personal disappointments in life and so many people let her down. And yet she had such a strong desire to, to stay on course she had such a, a, a sunny disposition and a strong spirit. Uh, the, the, the sense that history is on your side, that we're making progress, and a uh, willingness to convey that sense to others, I think was really important. In 1984, after the uh, uh, defeat of, of Joan Grow, who was running as the DFL candidate for the US Senate, defeat by Rudy Boschwitz, uh, Rosalie gave a talk, and I found the notes of that in, in the, her files at the Historical Society Library and her big, she had a, a, a large handwriting and often used a big fat felt tip pen. She wrote, uh, 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 we will not give one inch to despair. That was the grit, the attitude that she approached so many things. I think it, it takes work to sustain the idealism like that. Uh, uh, that's maybe part of the task of adulthood for all of us, to find that wellspring, uh, whatever it may be, some either within us or through connection with others, to uh, uh, shore up our ideals, to uh, avoid despair and, and discouragement, and to keep going. For Rosalie, that was the Quaker faith and the connection she had through the friends. Uh, she was a faithful Quaker all of her adult life after uh, leaving the University of Kansas. She uh, took great interest and solace in those relationships. She loved to open her home for retreats. She loved community singing. And would, uh, her idea of community singing was to sing a cappella from memory far into the night. Uh, just it found such joy in all of that. In the middle of the, the, the campaign in 1978, she kept her commitment to uh, take some time off the campaign trail and, and host at her farmhouse this uh, a, a gathering of Quakers from around the region and I'm told that she, they, she slept very little that whole weekend but sang the night away. Um, there was a naive sense in those years and during the, the second wave years that if we could uh, only populate uh, centers of leadership in business and in government and other structures too I suppose, populate them with uh, enough women, uh, get those occupational doors completely open that then life would be better for everyone and that would sort of take care of a lot of problems. So a little bit like some, the sense that some people in this country had in 2008 when we elected our first African-American president, that now we've got an African-American man in the White House, so life is gonna be better for race relations in this country. 
I think we've learned in the years since 2008 that there's, that's maybe a naive notion. And I think those folks who uh, thought that way in the 1960s and 70s might agree with me that, that's, that it, it, indeed populating those leadership posts is a necessary but not sufficient condition for affecting change. It does take more than that. It takes a movement. If, if Rosalie were here, I think she would say organize. I know my friend Arvon Frazier would say organize. It takes uh, the political connections that come from grassroots efforts to, to make real changes. These things don't happen from the top down. And that certainly was not the case with the uh, second wave women's movement. This is the uh, portrait of Rosalie. It was actually painted about 10 years after she left the court. This, uh, this was the portrait that's hanging still at William Mitchell College of Law in a prominent place outside the cafeteria where students gather. It's uh, moving to me that, that they found such a, a prominent place to, to place a very large portrait of Rosalie Wall. She was a, a really important figure, I think, in, in Minnesota. But as she would say, I, I, I owe it all to the women. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we return to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Lori Sturdivant and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Sturdivant ever encountered Esther Tomlanovich during her research for her book. Yes. In fact, on the very same night that Rosalie was appointed to the state Supreme Court, she was appointed to the District 10 District Court bench. And I think Rudy had Esther on the list. It might have even been reversed, but for the fact that there, people used to say that Esther was related to Rudy. That's not true, but there was a strong uh, personal friendship between uh, Esther's husband's family and Rudy's, uh, I think, mother's family. There's some kind of personal, I describe it in the book, there's a, there was a personal connection. He didn't want this first appointment to the Supreme Court of a woman to be tainted in any way by a, any sense of nepotism. So Esther got the district court judgeship. Of course, later, Rudy does elevate Esther to the state, state Supreme Court. The, the few women in law school in the 50s, when she went to school, were, were treated like, like class mascots or like the pet. Now, they knew, she said to me, they knew that we would never get interviews at the big law firms, and they were right. Uh, Esther wound up working at, in uh, state government at, in the Reviser of Statutes office, which is, uh, those of us who've been around the legislature know that's a, a big, heavy job with a lot of late nights at the end of the legislative session and not very good pay. That's what she did. This audience member mentions that the role of family caregiving, whether for the elderly, disabled, or newborns, often falls on women. She wonders what effect this might have on the workforce. One of the reasons I'm optimistic that we are heading for a third wave is that Minnesota is facing a pretty severe labor shortage. Beginning about now, beginning this period, it's already being felt in greater Minnesota. And, but for the next 10, 12 years, there's sort of a dip in the, the 18 to 64-year-old age, 64 year old population that people in the, their prime working years, as the baby boomers exit the workforce, the Gen X group in Minnesota, that uh, now 35 to 55 year old age group, it's a small cohort. It's gonna become very important for two things to happen in order for the workforce to stay at a good size. The millennials have to stay in the workforce while they have their children, if they have their children. 
That becomes important. That augurs in favor of me measures like parenting, le parenting leave and on-site child care, things like that. It's also going to be important for more baby boomers to work a little longer. And that's where the caregiving piece comes in. The single biggest reason for reti early retirements in this country is the need to take care of a frail elderly parent. So there are lots of women in this room who probably remember hearing the, the old saying that the best long-term care insurance is a daughter who loves you. That's still real in our society. There's still an expectation that, that when, when the 85-year-old needs to be taken to the doctor, as my mother told me today that her, my dad is sick and she's got to go to the doctor, I, there's a sense in my head that I should get home and take care of that. That's, that sense is, is a drain on the workforce at a time when <coughs> Minnesota needs every worker it can get. So I'm looking for some adjustments to come to keep more people in the workforce longer. Another audience member wonders what Sturdivant's thoughts are on Madeleine Albright's recent comment condemning women for not supporting other women. The former Secretary of State introduced Hillary Clinton at a February 6th event in New Hampshire, prior to the state's primary election, telling the crowd and voters in general, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Well, you know, I didn't like that comment because I just thought, I thought it was counterproductive. I, 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 I think that uh, it, it was uh, the, the goal of the second wave to open those doors, to, to break the glass ceilings, and, and that's really what Hillary Clinton has been arguing should happen in her case. She's been making that uh, a claim for, or as a reason to elect her. She's got other reasons, I'm sure, as, as well, but that's been a much more overt claim by the Clinton campaign in this election than it was in 2008. Meanwhile, the, the thinking of a lot of people who are good feminists has moved beyond shell, uh, cracking the occupational doors open and thinking more about uh, how do we create the best environment for the sharing of adult responsibilities across gender lines. And when people think that way, they kind of like the idea of uh, lower cost health care that's available for everybody or, or free college education, the other things that Bernie Sanders are offering. It, it, so uh, on, on that basis, they feel like they are being true to their good feminist values and in supporting the Sanders candidacy. Uh, we'll see how this all shakes out. Uh, there was a good piece in the New York Times yesterday that said that the longer a woman is in the workforce, the more she perceives the value, that, that, that there are still some professional doors that could stand to be opened a little wider. I suspect that's maybe true. This question asker wonders if Sturdivant can talk about a few of the equity lawsuits brought forward in Minnesota that played a part in helping progress the women's movement. There were many lawsuits. For example, at the University of Minnesota, there was the Regender lawsuit that was important to finally equalizing salaries and, and, and some opportunities for women. So there were more than there was more than one lawsuit. But the Minnesota, the Women's Equity Action League, which is a national organization that I think helped foster these lawsuits, was a national group that, for a time in the early 70s, was headed by Arvon Fraser. And they, they were folks who, through, through a weird set of circumstances, the 1964 Civil Rights Act sponsored by Hubert Humphrey uh, in, the, in the U.S. Senate, had added to it in the U.S. House a, a provision against gender discrimination. And it was added by a Southern congressman in hopes that it would kill the bill. He was so sure that it was an overreach that he, he, thought, he put it in as a poison pill to kill the bill. Edith Green, who was uh, the, state rep, the uh, U.S. representative, I think, from Oregon, one of the very few women in the Congress then, accepted that as a friendly amendment and the darn thing stayed in all the way through conference and was signed into law. 
wonderful opportunity that the, most of the women in the 1960s didn't wake up to. But Arvon's group begins to, I think it forms in 1968 or 9, and this Women's Equity Action League, and they seize upon this language in the Civil Rights Act of 64 and begin to think about how could we, how could we pursue and fund lawsuits around the country. I suspect if I were to have looked at other professions, each profession has its own story, different version of how this all came to pass, although at about the same time. And that's what's sort of interesting to me about the women's movement. This was not a, a, a case of, of one or two leaders at the top of Gloria Steinem sitting in New York and deciding how we're going to proceed. This really was a, a national <coughs> sort of changing of the mind. Had to do, I think, with generational change has to do with the, this big baby boomer generation reaching adulthood, the best educated Americans ever in history, and, and that generation not being willing to take a back seat, has to do with the, their mothers realizing they needed to play a professional role to earn some money to educate those baby boomers, and their sense that, that they had long lives ahead of them, they had tasted some opportunity during World War II and wanted to taste a little more. All those things generationally made a difference. It doesn't surprise me that we had in Minnesota kind of a slowdown of interest in all this when Generation X arrives on the stage. They, were, they came of age during the Reagan years. They uh, have had sort of a different outlook about move, social movements where they were not joiners by and large. And, uh, and they're just playing smaller in numbers. So it was at a time when uh, uh, the big baby boomer generation provided ample labor for the Minnesota employers. Uh, that uh, smaller generation didn't tend to be pushers to, to, to change something that, that was going on. Oh, but the millennials, they now surpass the boomers in numbers in Minnesota and in the country by quite a bit increase as the boomers begin to crumble a bit from older age. So uh, we, we're seeing a, a real generational energy around the millennials and that we're seeing that play out in our presidential election this year. Well, and you, you, you've said something that spurred a whole other train of thought that I'd like to add on. In the 1960s and 70s, as the women's movement begins to take shape, it springs out of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. But the civil rights movement folks were not really glad to see it come. I had a long conversation with Josie Johnson for this book. Josie Johnson was a real leader in, in the uh, civil rights movement in Minneapolis in those years and uh, is still just a, a marvelous, marvelous uh, citizen and uh, activist in this state. And Josie said, you know, we, we women in the, in the civil rights movement have been working so hard so that our men could be treated fairly in the workplace. Our focus was on fairness for our men. To see these middle class women from the suburbs coming in and say, well, we deserve a place too, that, that didn't seem like the agenda that they wanted to embrace. Things look different now. And one of the things that's been uh, pointed out to me is that a, a third wave will be much more inclusive racially and much more inclusive along class lines in order to be effective. And I, I really think that's, that's true. And in fact, racial equity and gender equity go now hand in hand. When you think about who really is not benefiting, who, who suffers the most from the fact that we are still not paying women what we should in the workplace, it's, it's women who are raising families alone. And, and disproportionately, those are people of color. Racial equity and women's equity are, are one and the same in so many ways on, in terms of health disparities, in terms of uh, 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 disparities with regard to ability to obtain credit, that kind of thing. Those, uh, they, they go hand in hand. And I'm looking for a much more racially inclusive third wave in Minnesota. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering 
where Rosalie Wall's children are today. I can give you a, just a real quick rundown on those five kids because it's a, it's a bit of a sad story and it helps you understand a little bit more about what Rosalie was dealing with as she's developing her career. Her eldest son uh, had schizophrenia and uh, is living in a group home today in Duluth and has been in a group home more or less all of his life. Uh, second child was Sarah, who was a rock in Rosalie's life. And she winds up married to uh, J uh, Michael J. Davis, the uh, just recently retired chief judge of the Federal District Court of Minneapolis. What a legal powerhouse they have been. Sarah also is an attorney and has worked for the Hennepin County Attorney's Office for many years. They're both of them kind of retiring now and certainly deserve it. And they have two sons, both of whom are, I think, becoming attorneys as well. Um, then uh, came uh, next in age was Tim, and I forget what his profession was, but Tim's daughter is an attorney. And Tim was just a marvelous help for me on this book. I wish I could remember what, right now what Tim does for a living. Um, next came Mark, uh, Rosalie's son, born in 1955, and sadly Mark has been an alcoholic all of his life. Alcoholism ran in the Wall family, and in, if, 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 that, if that is genetic, he got that gene. Uh, and he also has been in and out of institutions. Then baby Jenny came along, and Jenny was Rosalie's caregiver in the last several years of her life. Rosalie lived with Jenny and her husband, Patrick. Uh, Jenny works for a, a business in St. Paul and uh, has a, a small house there in St. Paul and has been very active in, in DFL and feminist causes around the state. So that's the rundown on the kids. Uh, I think there are eight grandchildren and a few great-grandchildren coming along. In her last years, Rosalie was not well enough to participate much in politics, but in those first years after her retirement, she relished that the fact that she, the shackles of, uh, of uh, uh, having to be non-political during her judicial years were, were finally removed, and she got, <laughs> she got involved again in, in the DFL party and in uh, the DFL Feminist Caucus, and uh, in some of those years around the time of the Iraq War, you could find her holding a protest sign down by the Lake Street Bridge on, uh, on Tuesday <laughs> afternoons when they would do that. So. She uh, was uh, active in that respect. Yeah. Thank you, Chef, everybody. Appreciate it. Good night. That wraps up our Rum River Library event with Lori Sturdivant and Anoka County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Karen Abbott at 7 p.m. Thursday, March 3rd, at Ramsey County's Roseville Library. Karen Abbott is a New York Times best-selling historian and a pioneer of what USA Today calls sizzle history. Her newest title, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, brings to light the stories and contributions of four daring females from the Civil War. Meet Karen Abbott, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussion from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.